Hey everyone, welcome to Mormons on Mushrooms. Thank you for joining us. We thought we'd put this at the beginning of every episode. Wanted to make sure that we clarify that going in, you know that on this podcast we talk about some wild stuff. We go places mentally and emotionally and spiritually uh, that are all over the map. And we don't do any pre-prep with our guests. And so anything that our guests express is new to us. We try not to edit out much of it. And it does not necessarily reflect the views of Mike and I but we do want this to be a platform for people to hear different views and to uh, sit with that. In addition, we often talk about subjects that could be triggering for certain types of trauma. And uh, if you are one of those people, like me, uh, I think that we just want to give you fair warning and ask that you uh, take the steps necessary to keep yourself Uh, in a good space. Thanks again for listening. Hey! Hey! What's up? How much? How are you? Dude, you got like wireless headphones and everything. Oh, it's all the technology happening here, yeah. Oh, man. We were just talking about technology before you came on because the last couple of recordings, my my audio has been like way low where we've had to amplify it. Does it sound oh, really? okay to you guys right now? Sounds good, yeah. Yeah, it always sounds fine to me. Huh. Yeah, the one we did last week like um, was with uh, the Zelf on the Shelf people. And it, when I was editing it, like you could hear Mike and the two of them really well. And then when I would when I would speak and... God knows it was kind of good that it was so soft because I deleted most of what I was saying because I was pretty drunk during that recording. <laughs> but, uh, but it was like way low. Anyway, yeah, te- we're not all that technical. Hey, here comes Mike. Hey, Peter, one of the things that we do usually when we have a, a, a guest on mm-hmm. is Mike and I stand up and like dance to, like to make the guest feel kind of like comfortable. Do you want to do right. that w- to Mike with oh, me? Yeah. All right, here he comes. Okay, hold on. Ready? <laughs> 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 we did it. Oh. Dude, that that's the that first time I've got to be able to do that for you rather than with you. I was so excited. <laughs> I like it better there. when it's done for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shalise even joined. I, 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 you know, I was not going to say, hey, Shalise, do you want to pull your shirt up along with me and Peter? And But Shalise was dancing for you too, Mike. I missed it. I missed the sleeves part. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I like that shirt, Shalise. Thanks. It's a witchy it one. Vibes today. Yeah. That I is cool. What's one. the What's the pendant? Yeah, it's funny. I didn't even realize till I put it on, but it also has a snake. It's from oh. Peru. Those are turquoise. Oh, that's a beautiful. Very yeah. cool. Thank you. Yeah, throwing some snake energy. Yeah, and I like the blue stones when we record because it's good for communication. Oh, heck yeah. See, this is stuff we need to know about. <laughs> <laughs> I actually pulled, so I pulled a, an animal spirit card today. What was it? It was a cobra. 
Ooh. Yeah. Some snake energy happening. Like I'm there we go. My necklace. Oh. Well, Peter, it's fine. It's it's so exciting to finally uh, have you. I mean, semi live, I guess. But uh, you know, we've ob- I've obviously like Facebook stalked you and and stuff. Like that. <laughs> yes. Well, my compliments to to all of you by uh, seeking to raise the quality of the program by having me on. Well, that's we all know the the white male demographic is severely underrepresented in the podcast space. So that's right. We could we we part. needed to diversify just a little bit, so we mm-hmm. appreciate it. It was a big ask for us. So I mean, you know, <laughs> my uh, pleasure. I'm glad to be here. I'm Doug. The guy below me is Mike, and the lady over to my left that's Shalice. It's so weird. I I haven't put faces to names at all. I realized like I didn't even have a construct in my head except for Shalice who I've seen on social right. media but you guys have have been hidden behind the shadows and I'm like okay I didn't have a picture but now I do that's awesome <laughs> who uh who was it that came on and they were surprised with what we looked like so they said it was Casey uh, was it Casey yeah she yeah. she thought Mike based on his voice looked like the main guy from Glee like the teacher <laughs> she thought I looked. She thought I was going to look like Seth Rogen, which I didn't know how to take that. If that was positive or negative, but I, I took it as a positive. I'm happy to be. I would take it as a positive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm really excited about this one, Peter, because I know we spoke on the phone. Gosh, it's been probably about a month now. One month and a half, yeah. Yeah, and then some personal stuff happened. You know, my father-in-law passed and stuff, and then it just kind of pushed things out further than we were expecting, but. Yeah, I just loved our conversation, loved how articulate you were about things, loved how you were able to, you know, express some of the stuff I was feeling just in a better, more articulate way. Oh, well, thank you. It's it's really interesting because if we had done, if we had done this then or a couple of weeks after that, or even a couple of weeks ago, I, I feel like it would have been a very different conversation because the pace of stuff that's going on in my life right now is to that degree where it feels like six weeks was forever ago. And I think it's partly the, the COVID effect, but yeah. So thanks universe for saying this is the right time to, yeah. to do this. Well, I think that's what's been kind of cool about it. And I mean, you say the COVID effect, I also think it's like a little bit of the mushroom effect too, you know, and the inner work effect that as soon as yeah. you start to really dig in and heal your inner world, whether through plant medicine or, or whatever, you start to notice shifts rapidly the the scene changes then you get to the next level of the game or whatever whatever analogy you want to use but like you've been stuck in like a pattern for so long and all of a sudden you satisfy that pattern and it takes you to the next stage you know the the, the dream shifts in a way it will have been two years in january since i i did it for real for the first time and that pace has not slackened since then and and there are days where i'm like this is cool we're cruising along and then there are days where i'm like could I, could I just take a break for, for a second with personal growth? Like I'm good. I'm good here for a minute. Nope. We got work I, to do. So away we I go. I can relate to that so much with, uh, so my wife and I, we are my person and I, my mate, <laughs> which one are we using? We got to use one of them. A mate. I mean, I think it's up to you. I, I, I'm okay with any and all. So, um, I'm right now I'm feeling my mate. We'll do my mate and I, we were, uh, you know, we always talk about being in, I think with our therapist, we talk about being in like a chrysalis, right? Mm-hmm. And there's some anxiety that like she's going to emerge from her chrysalis before me and fly off, and vice versa. And we always have like this anxiety ebbing and flowing of each other growing. But then there's also like this 
we do emerge for a moment and we're like, oh yeah, I'm going to go right back in, <laughs> right back in a new one. These were beautiful wings, but I can do better and just keep going in and yeah, dissolving and reemerging. I definitely had an idea in my head that when I, when I went in the first time, it was really a tick the boxes, find a alternative mental health treatment because what I was doing wasn't working. That was my sort of intention going in and expecting to come out and say, okay, we tick the boxes, you're, you're fixed for lack of a better term. And then life would kind of trundle along its merry way of very much the sort of take the pill, get better Western medicine mentality. Nope, that is not the way it went down. And so that effect is still continuing. And yeah, it's that up and down and up and down and everything's, everything's great. And we've done some good work, but oh, look, here's some new stuff that was always there that we just didn't notice before. Let's go do that. And on and on and on. And I'm and to the point now where I don't know that, I don't know that I have any expectations that that pace will slacken. And I think to people who say, you know, when you get into your elderly years, 50, 60, 70, people tend to stop. They tend to stop learning, stop growing, stop trying new things. And I don't, I don't want that for myself. I haven't reached a point where I've, I feel like, okay, I've made it. I've gotten all the things that I want to get out of life. I can stop now and be happy. I'm, I'm not, I'm not there. Not that I, not that I want more than I have. I just don't think the process is done. Well, we are excited to be joined by Peter, who's been an active member of our community um, really since the beginning. So thank you for joining us. My, my question uh, in, in regards to the thing that we're talking about right now. Um, so as far as like getting to that point of like, I just need to take a break from some of this. I need to take a break from self-improvement and discovery. And it's just coming at me too hard. Mike, you know, a little bit, bit about that. I've, I've been kind of in that uh, this week. I kind of popped out of it last night and this morning, thanks to some help from Mike. But um, what, what is the process like for the three of you when you get into, God, I just can't, I got to just stop for a second and I can't, okay, enough self-improvement. I want to just sit in my own turds for a while and, and be happy about it and be mad and sit and have anxiety and be sad and that kind of stuff. I mean, I just let myself do it for a little bit because I think if we don't allow ourselves to feel all the feels, they'll just creep up again sooner or later. So I don't know. That's a tough one because I've had ups and downs with depression and stuff and I don't know how to fix it. But sometimes I think it's okay to just allow yourself to be a little bit sad and pouty for a minute. <laughs> I, my approach has been very similar and I'm, I'm really in a space of trying to feeling like I need to figure that out. Like it's something to be figured out where I have been going is, is really just back to meditation. So for the listener at home, the room I'm in is my home office. And so I can show you guys sort of off here. I've got a meditation oh, nice. space, a little meditation yeah. chair. And so this is where I work during the day. I work from home. And so I will take 10 minutes if I'm getting overwhelmed at work and I will go sit on the chair and I will do a quick meditation, usually in like some Alan Watts thing that's set to music. But the thing, the thing that I go back to in those moments, particularly is one meditation where he talks about how thoughts, emotions are things that happen to us. They are things that, that we are not doing no more than a sneeze or a muscle twitch is something that we do. They come over us. And so trying to pretend that there's something they're not is where a lot of that anxiety builds up. I wish the situation was different than it was. So some basic Buddhist philosophy there, but the more I can, like Shalisa, just let it happen, let it pass. They go like clouds in the sky. And so it's really just sitting and being present is where I'm 
kind of at today. Sometimes it works quick, sometimes it doesn't, and it takes a few, a few tries. But I don't know that it needs to be any more complicated than that, at least for me right now. No, I love that. And I love how I think it's going to tie in a little bit to what we're going to talk about today. Um, one, I, I've, I've been there where it's just kind of like, I'm, I'm done being in a chrysalis for now, right? I just want to go fly away and maybe never get back in a chrysalis again. Um, but one of the things I've been really thinking about lately is how, you know, I think, you know, my, when I talk to my therapist, she talks about like digging in the dirt, you know, digging in. And I've talked about it, how on mushrooms I like to like dig in and dig and let's dig. Right. But really living in the present, the present moment is teaching us. It's actually doing work. Right. And so we could actually get into a state where we're just living fully in the present and enjoying whatever experiences and lessons the present moment is giving us. And then we're just that you're just living life. You're enjoying life. You're feeling life. And you're also doing work simultaneously. And that's, what's been coming up for me. I think the last couple of weeks is how can I better do that in the present? You know? Yeah. Anytime one of those, one of those sort of paradox like things pops up for me where it seems you start to explain it to yourself or somebody else and it feels somewhat counterintuitive or backwards somehow. How can I just sit and not do anything? And that's doing the work that doesn't, doesn't immediately on the surface make sense. When I started this process or this exercise, what I would run into a lot is, is realizations where I didn't know what I didn't know. The work that I had at, or the life that I had experienced had not prepared me for quote unquote reality outside the church, the world was constructed a certain way and anything outside that bubble was just foreign to me. And I didn't know how to reconcile what I knew and what I knew that I didn't know with that other space of, I don't know what I don't know. What I found increasingly is when I get to those paradox moments where I'm pulling on a thread on something, I'm like, this seems completely backwards. This seems completely counter counterintuitive. It can't really be a thing. That's the moments where I'm like poking on the edge of that bubble. And eventually if I keep pulling on that thread enough or poking on the edge of that bubble, I will expand the size of it or I will nudge into another place where eventually that, that one thing will make sense. And being able to recognize where those edges are has been huge because then I'm, I don't feel like I'm fooling around in the dark as much. I have a, some kind of sign or symbol that I can say, Oh, okay. Something's happening. I can be a little bit more patient with the process. I can be a little bit more patient with myself. Is there, is there an example you can give of that? I'm trying, I'm trying to grasp it. So, so you, you said something to the effect of there's, there's all this work to be done, but how we really do the work is just sit and be present in the moment. And to me, when I say I need to do the work, I'm thinking like deep introspection and aggressive journaling and going yeah. to therapy and doing Dream stuff. And when I come, mushroom, yeah. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. when I come back from doing those kind of things, I am mentally and physically and emotionally tired. I am exhausted. When I meditate, when I just sit and I'm in the present moment, that doesn't feel like work to me, mm. but it's in those times that the back of my mind or my emotional core or whatever you want to call it is processing all of that other stuff that I've already done. So the work is still happening, but it doesn't on the surface immediately seem like it. Well, you're just sitting on a chair, listening to a meditation, not doing anything. How is that the work? It seems paradoxical to me. Mm. And yet there it is. Mm. Or yeah. even, even if it's not meditating, I think that's where it's kind of cool. I think meditation teaches you that, right? It teaches you that like, hey, I'm going to experience the present moment as it is. 
But then, so then you apply that outside of meditation and you, you know, you're sitting around a table or you're doing something you're, and people will trigger you in certain ways. And with every trigger, if you kind of surrender to the feeling of it, it's pushing you deeper into yourself. I mean, I just got finished, done, finished reading a book. It's the same guy who did the untethered soul. It's called the surrender experiment and really good. It's, it's, it's the story of his life and how basically at a young age, he's like, I'm going to surrender to the flow of life. You know, he had this big awakening during a meditation. And so for the rest of his life, he just opened to experience and he allowed himself. It was like he was feeling the present moment as it was happening. And so things kept shifting and changing. And it's not to spoil it, but he like, it's a fascinating journey where he goes from just being a yogi in the woods who dropped out of, uh, he was doing graduate school to all of a sudden leading a uh nationwide software company. And I don't know, it's a crazy journey that he goes on, but with each moment, the present moment is teaching him everything his soul needs to know to kind of go to the next stage. And so if we're not in the present moment, we're not, we get stuck in that same patterns and same loops. And, And looking for a complex way out of that. And the complexity is that it just isn't that complex. Mm. It really isn't. Ooh. Guys, we got in early and get- <laughs> yeah, we just started, huh? Like we probably ought to back up a little bit. And <laughs> Peter, uh, would you maybe introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself, and we can uh, kind of go from there. But we, I think, listeners are going to want to know who the fuck we're talking to right now. Sure. And, all right. <laughs> um, we're not going to do this John DeLynn style, so I won't. I won't go into that level of detail. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm very curious to hear your answers as to why I'm here. I'm just a guy. I'm, I'm not here plugging a business. I don't have a book. I don't do a podcast. I'm just a guy. I help out on the Facebook group for the Mormons on Mushrooms podcast sometimes. And I comment and, and write my thoughts, but that's about it. So I'm, I live in Canada. I've lived here my whole life. Uh, my, my mom joined the church when I was 10, um, with me and my younger brother and younger sister. And so I, I grew up in the church, but had joined it, I think late enough to have some semblance of a mental construct of what life not in the church was like and struggled from, from almost day one with not really buying in. So the, the baptism story for me is I was, I was baptized because after my mom got baptized, no one would stop asking me, when are you going to get baptized? And at 10 years old, I learned pretty quick that being authentic, saying what I really wanted was going to be met with resistance. That's kind of a beauty for the missionaries because uh, I, I don't know if they've changed it, but when I was a missionary, you you were like the uh, perfect boost our numbers, low hanging fruit, because by being older than eight and you're, you know, your mom's a convert, mm-hmm. And you're not actually just a born in the covenant uh, uh, youth baptism. You're actually yet another convert. And I don't know, Mike. I don't know how they did it in yours, but they 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 divided it into two categories. And it was like you got to get you got to hit your numbers for uh, member baptisms, mm-hmm. and you got to hit your numbers for convert baptisms. So Peter, you were like the golden child. You were you were a convert. Absolutely. And the the missionaries that baptized me were were the same ones that baptized my mom. So they hadn't even transferred out by the time this happened. This would have been 1989. So, so think, think back or think to what the church was like in 1989. This was, this was near the peak of the church's TV and radio marketing push with the sort of family friendly 
um, family friendly message. Family is central to what we're doing. And it was a great message. So my mom, isn't it about time? Isn't that? The yeah, one? that's <laughs> the one. So, so single mom in a small town with, with no real supports in my grandma, but that was about it. Um, here's this message of a, of a community where she can believe something that, that really resonates with her that looks on the surface like a place that's really great to raise kids where there's activity programs and there's there's structure and 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 just love all over who wouldn't who wouldn't join what came after that in my life i had to work really hard to reframe my experiences as deep, deep anger and resentment towards her for doing that, towards the things that people in the branch I grew up in did. Nobody had any malicious intent at all. They were doing the best they could with what they knew at the time. And it was just dumb luck that it happened to be a branch that was full of McConkie Mormons that thought Mormon Ah. doctrine was a fourth book or fifth book of scripture, first Ah. edition Mormon doctrine. So that was kind of the culture that I was raised in until I was 17 was, you know, no swimming on Sundays, keep your church clothes on, no face cards. It was that kind of thing. So I remember so the my, face card thing. That was, yeah, oh that's <laughs> hey, my, uh, my, my dad's, my dad's family is McConkie Mormons. Uh, my oh, dad was a little bit of a black sheep. So we were allowed to change out of our church clothes on Sunday and we could play like, um, you know, uh, I don't know, Mormon, Rummy, I don't know if you guys are. Anyway, we we oh. could play with face cards, but my the rest of my like my cousins and stuff like that, we were exactly the same. Where we we couldn't if it was like at a family gathering or a reunion yeah. or something like that. It was like I actually I found out about that. Oh, sorry, with uh, with my first girlfriend. So I we played with face cards growing up. We played face cards um, in at school like camp campouts for scouts. You know, I just grew up playing face cards, and then my I was fourteen at the time I went to my girlfriend's house and she's like, I'm, they, she got these like Disney face cards or, or, or something. So it was okay <laughs> if it was like Disney, but not if it was like really a knight, a king, a Jack and a rook or whatever. Or, well, yeah, because rook. of like, because of the symbol, the symbolism uh, surrounding like the king, the queen, the Jack, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I would have prayed for y'all. You went, you mute, you went mute. Shalise, what did you say? What did you guys mean by McConkie Mormons? I've never heard of that. So Bruce R. McConkie was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. He was a very prolific and prominent member of the Quorum of the Twelve back in the 70s. Uh, he okay. wrote a book called Mormon Doctrine. He, he's the guy that's responsible for the little, um, you know, the beginning of every chapter of the Book of Mormon, New Testament, and Old Testament that gives you like a summary of what happens in that chapter. Oh. McConkie is responsible for writing those. Uh, my mission president was on the little team that wrote those with him. So he would tell us all these crazy fucking McConkie McConkie stories. But McConkie also wrote this book called Mormon Doctrine that um, had some pretty wild stuff in it. I mean, the er the earliest editions had all of the things about um, why blacks don't have the priesthood, why the Lamanites were cursed with a dark skin, uh, just all of the like the stuff that has been toned down and softened into that like now. But McConkie was a hardliner. And he gave a real fa- days before his death. He gave a real famous speech in general conference where he talked about he he knows Jesus as well today as he will after he's weeping at the at the feet of the Christ when he passes on. Anyway, so he kind of created a faction of Mormons within Mormonism that were these insanely orthodox balls to the wall 
very strict observational Mormons. And so it's kind of a jargon term when we're using that, when we're saying McConkie Mormons, we're talking about like the hardcore folks who like don't back down away from like the original conversion therapy. Yeah, exactly. So when you, when you think of the time frame in which that's happening to me in particular, so this is late eighties, no internet, small town, no books, not even the idea that there might be books that would provide a narrative that was contrary to this. So I grew up in a space where it wasn't that I didn't think it was true. It's that I was mad that it was true. I didn't want it to be true, but what choice did I have? There was, there was no alternative. And so that's kind of a space that I existed in for, for all of my teenage years and for quite a long time after. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't we talk? Uh, we didn't want it to be true. Like mad that it was true is such a a, a common theme. I mean, even with friends that I currently have, uh, both in and out of the church, that's still a theme of as a kid. Kind of like I know it's true. I just wish that it wasn't, so that I could get involved in some of these extracurricular activities that some of my non-Mormon friends are involved in, but, but because I know it's true, I can't do anything fun and cool. (laughs) Not even that, even bigger. I would argue that all of the women, when they first learned about polygamy in heaven had that same idea. Like, I know it's true, but I wish it wasn't because there's, you feel totally helpless when you find out that you're probably going to be a plural life in heaven, but there's literally nothing you can do about it. It's just how it is. You're enslaved for eternity, but just put a smile on it and stand up and recite the young women's <laughs> motto or whatever. It is. Yeah, like all yeah. the articles of faith. <laughs> yeah, and that's where you get a lot of the will. You know, we'll understand more yeah. in the next life. Like, why? Why do I understand this to be true? But why is it making me so unhappy? Mm. Well, either you know it's Satan making you unhappy, not these teachings, or you, you'll understand in the next life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a it's an IOU that can never be cashed in, in the flesh. It can never be uh, redeemed in, in in this life, and so you just have to keep building up your. Who was it? This it was Steve uh, from the Divine Assembly who said, uh, "Celestial Bitcoin." I mean, you just you're just yeah. saving up all of this oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, currency. No, uh, I remember that. My my mom used to say that. Uh, and I think it's something that she learned from her mom was like every good deed that you did would give you a brick in heaven. And I think yeah. they might actually teach that. And so like the more good things you do or the more checks that you have off of your list, you'll have a bigger home when you die. So that I know that story. that is apocryphal. So that is not official Mormon. So because when, when Christ is uh, when Christ is on here. So in the New Testament, he talks about the mansions of heaven and and um, and and living with his father and how we can return to live with the father. And so that became one of those, you are part of the, the you are called to be part of the elect of heaven in these latter days. And your, your generation is the greatest generation. None of that is ever any kind of like actual Mormon doctrine, but that exact, the thing that you're talking about that you, that you learned growing up in Utah, I learned growing up in Idaho that like every little kind of good deed is a, is a piece of, brick and mortar in your heavenly celestial mansion. And, and and we're still, still in those days, we're like, oh, well, bigger the mansion means more righteous, means better of a person, means I'm like more elect of God type of thing, you know? It's the prosperity gospel. And, and there's variations yeah. on that in all kinds of, of like in primary and young men's and young women's, there's all kinds of variations. So I heard a lot, like the, the more righteous I am, the more I obey, the hotter my wife will be after I get yeah. back from my mission. Yeah. As though that's 
I was like, I love Shalisa's face like, on that. But uh, it's Shalisa so gross. But it's true. I would. I got was taught that. Um, in fact, one of the last farewells I went to, missionary farewells, uh, the missionary giving the the talk actually kind of joked about made it, you know, as a joke, but kind of hearty har har. Like I'm going to serve a good mission because I know I want to get back. I want a really hot wife. Wow! As if uh, that's even important. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. As if that's yeah. even important. And and furthermore, the superficiality of that. I mean, the, I'm sure the whole congregation, Mike, when he cracked that joke, laughed because it's like, oh yeah, this this guy's charming. He's going to be a great missionary and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But if you're someone like me, who uh, grew up having a lot of like uh, self-confidence issues and body issues and, and, and thought I was a ugly duckling and all that kind of stuff. If you're sitting out in the congregation and you know, you're, you're a male or female who's just in, I, I just, this is my dream guy. He's up there giving a speech about going on a mission. When he gets home, I want to marry him. And he makes that joke. Doesn't that tap into some of that trauma of like, Oh, I'm not, good looking enough because I know he's going to be a good missionary. I know he's going to baptize a, a, a shitload of people. And therefore, based on the way I think I look, I don't qualify. And it's just another speaking of bricks in the wall of, you know, it's just another brick in the wall of the trauma that we of self image and the, and the, and the ways we value ourselves and are taught to value ourselves in childhood. And not just trauma, but generational trauma. Because again, I have to remind myself continually when I start to go down these these rabbit holes, and I had to get off off ex Mormon Reddit because I would get sucked back into these conversations. Nobody who did this thought they were doing anything wrong. They didn't think they were doing anything malicious. They honest to goodness thought that this was this was a good, wholesome, helpful thing to tell me. Yep. And so it's hard to it's hard to blame them because they were taught the very same thing. And they were taught the very same thing and on and on and on back to however far you want to go. So the idea of generational trauma and trauma in the sense of, you know, memories that are, that are stored differently and cause issues later in life in the clinical sense, this is absolutely trauma. And it just gets handed down and handed down and handed down until somebody says, no, I recognize this for what this is. I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. Well, it's exactly what you said. You don't know what you don't know. So everybody preaching all of these things, they're, they're just unaware of what's actually going on until mm-hmm. someone brings it to light. So I want to know, Peter, at what point did you kind of figure it out and go your own way? Oh, a lot of different times. So I, I graduated high school when I was 17 and I stopped going to church immediately because you had to be 19 to go on a mission then. So there would have been too big a gap for me to just stay home and work. And I wanted to get out of that town so badly. So I, I immediately stopped going and was out for a couple of years. Um, uh, ended up getting married instead of going on a mission. And at some point when we, my wife and I got married, we, we both had been members and stopped attending, but we ended up uh, finding our way back as we were getting ready to have kids, which again is a very typical story. You know, what kind of environment are we going to raise our kids in? And so that became sort of a, an ultimatum necessarily, but it's like, if we're going to be together, if we're going to do this, if we're going to have kids, it has to be in the church. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Another one of those places where I didn't really see another possibility. The church still in my head was true. I just didn't want it to be true. And by thinking that I could become inactive or distance myself from it. The concept of removing my records, I didn't even know that was a thing. By just getting far enough away from it, I could stop being preoccupied by it. It just never 
it never happened enough for me to stay away. And so I came back in. And so what was that? I was married at 20, lived the next 15 years as sort of an act, uh, playing the part of an active believing member so much that I think I actually convinced myself that I did believe, but that underlying kernel of, of eh, something's not right here never went away. And I remember one thing in particular when I was 10 and we were reading the Book of Mormon. So there's what, 279 chapters in the Book of Mormon, something like that. How many chapters in do you have to go before the solution to a problem is decapitating somebody in cold blood, stealing their, it's four chapters is the correct answer. Yes. Four chapters. That never sat right with me. And so when people will ask questions in, in say, discussion groups, like, what were the things that that never quite sat right with you? That's always one of them. Like, something's not, something's not right here. But what do you do with that, right? Like, what could I do as a, as a kid? And there was just enough of it being the, the day-to-day regimented story of my life. It was all my social circle. It was activities. It was every Sunday. It was, it was my life. It was, what else would I have if I didn't? Mm-hmm. With that came a whole slew of mental health problems, starting from the time I was 15, uh, diagnosed with depression and anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder at a time when Prozac had just come out a couple of years earlier. And the the sort of school of thought was that these symptoms were chemical imbalances in the brain the same way type 1 diabetes is. So if type 1 diabetes is something that someone deals with, it doesn't matter how much diet or exercise they do, they're going to need insulin injections to stay alive. And that was the framing that I was given. This is just the way you are. You're going to need to be on antidepressants for the rest of your life. Never occurred to me or anybody else around me to think maybe this is situational. Maybe this is induced by something. Because I wasn't like if you went down the checklist at a surface level, I wasn't abused. I wasn't in a bad home life. I had a strong social circle around me. I had good supports apparently on the surface, but I was continually pushing down who I was because every time my authentic self would pop up, it would get smashed down. Whether that was, you know, discovering my sexuality as a teenager, expressing doubt in the church, anything, push it down, push it away, play the part was the name of the game. And that has consequences. It can only get pushed down so much before it starts to come out of the cracks. And that's what happened to me. But I led the next 15 years thinking, I just have a chemical imbalance and trying various medications to keep it. What finally cracked for me was leading up to the November 2015 policy, I had I had stopped attending full-time. I was attending with my wife to juggle small kids in sacrament meeting. But I I was really at a point where where the stress and anxiety that I was feeling about being at church and the, and the issues that I had with with the way the church was run were just too much to attend, and so I stopped going. When the November policy hit, that was it. That was it for me. I couldn't I couldn't do it anymore. Waited to resign until the following February. I think it was a big when, one. Sorry to cut, but I'm just going to say that I think that was a big one for a lot of people. Um, really tipped the scales. And it was, and the reason why I think it was for me is, is not just people in general. Like it was, it was clearly causing injury, but I had non-member LGBT people in my family and to think of them as, as defective, as sinful, it was an abstract concept because it wasn't like this wasn't taught before that day in November, 2015, this was a thing, but I could push it off to the side because it wasn't in my day-to-day life. 
Well, now I had, now I was thinking of real humans, actual individual people who were being affected, people in my immediate family that were going to be affected by this. And I had to stop and pause and say, can I deal with this? And I, and as I reflect on that, I hate that that's what it took. It had to affect me personally. How many times do we hear that story, right? I didn't think it was an issue until it affected me perfectly, uh, in particular personally. And it sucks, but that's what it took for me on this one. But after that, I, I waited, resigned using QuitMormon because QuitMormon.com had just started in February 2016. And I wanted to be on the stats. I wanted numbers. I wanted yeah. data. I wanted to be counted amongst what I thought or pictured or expected to be a wave of people that were just saying enough is enough. And it was one thing for the narrative of the church to call inactive people or apostates in shadowy terms about how they just sinned and fell away until you start to look at the numbers. Once you have numbers to back it up, it's harder to ignore it. That, that getting rid of the church part of my life was a huge relief because all of a sudden, all these mental health issues that I had attributed to the church were relieved, at least temporarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I wasn't expecting was there was a whole lot of crap underneath that that smacked me upside the head right away. That made me really, really have a tough time separated from my wife and my family for a period to boot as as one of the outcomes of this and a real real depths of the anger the the, the real stereotypical angry ex-mormon phase for a good like four years Hmm. i was just gonna ask just to paint a picture for everybody else at this point how old are your kids how long had you been back in the church and what was your wife's first reaction where it was this like something you did together or you said that she wasn't on board Right. So this was, so let's say 2016. So my kids would have, been, I have four kids. They would have been 13 to seven. Mm-hmm. Um, she oh, was like formative she, years. Yeah. <laughs> she was um, active believing at the time. Um, wasn't a fan of my leaving. Um, it was a real, it was a real point of contention. It's so stereotypical. Like those, that part of my story is the same story you've heard a million times or read a million times. It's exactly the same. Um, you know, the long suffering wife who takes the kid to church with her non-member husband or her inactive husband who went to sacrament meeting for a while, but eventually couldn't do that. Now she has to drag four kids. Oh, isn't that sad So we had to deal with that? Yeah. Poor sister. That really that really was hard. It really took a toll on, on me, on her, on the kids, on, you know, my, my mom, my brother and sister. It was a really gross, awful period of my life. Yeah. I just want to back up real quick on one of the things you said there when you were leaving was it took a person, something personal for it to click with you. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I really feel like that's how it happens for a lot of, you know, it's like, we were even talking about, you know, in chapter four, when uh, Nephi cuts off Laban's head and. And steals his clothes and takes his shit and kidnaps his servants. I mean, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty dark. <laughs> you can, you can read that and be like, oh yeah, better one man shall die. than will entire nation dwindle in unbelief, whatever, whatever. But really if if i bet if most every mormon was in that situation at that time where they're like hey yeah cut this drunk guy's head off i they wouldn't do it you know no. and 
And yeah, and so you think of like the church's policy on against gay people. Usually it takes, it's like, oh, how is this affecting the people I know and love? And really it took me moving out to California to really get a lot, meet a lot of gay people, gay friends. And a lot of them were not, they're not Mormon, but I could imagine how, if they were, this policy would affect them. And I like the altruistic idea of, of not needing that, of, of just being sort of woke enough to see other human beings are suffering. This clearly is not right. It doesn't need to personally affect me. Unfortunately, that's not the reality. But the, the reason why I think that happens is the bubble of experience that we live in in the church is because we don't encounter a lot of openly gay people. We don't encounter a lot of, say, people of color or, or from other places. At least I don't. It's super white bread where I live. Um, it's outside my experience. So it's an abstraction. And it was an abstraction until it and, wasn't. And because we don't know many, the church is really good at having the token. The token, you know, we, like I remember in my high school, in my ward, a black family moved in. And they became like the only black family at my high school, only, you know, super musical, super talented, super devoted to the church. And they're the ones, they they still sing at the firesides, like when they're doing like uh, Pre- President Nelson's birthday or whatever, you know, as this black family that the church touts as like a token, you know, or, or when they highlight uh, the token gay member who has just, you know, so faithful that he's going to be abstinent his whole life, right? He's vowed to be abstinent to devote to the church. And how great is that? How beautiful is that? Yeah. Well, to your point, Mike, I mean, the, 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 it happening, having a, an effect on you personally. And I'm when I say you personally, I'm talking about all of us. I mean, dissonance is a thing that are, it's a defense mechanism because if we, if we felt on a personal level, all of the horrors and atrocities that happen, not just in religion, but in the world, we would we would go insane with um, uh, some of our empathetic attributes, but also just some of our basic humanity. Um, we have to find a way to create that dissonance in order, and our brain does it for us in order for us to function on daily life. So I, I think both Mike and I are saying to you, Peter, that um, we ha- we know the experience of that feeling that guilt because it took a personal experience or, or how it affects you on a, on an individual level for you, for the, you know, the veil to be lifted or your eyes to mm-hmm. be open. But I, but I, I think that's very human condition. And I, I think that um, it, 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 it creates in me this thing of like, I want to get rid of all cognitive dissonance and get rid of all of this kind of thing. But I don't think I do actually. I think that that dissonance helps me live a life where I can try to provide for my children and I can, uh, go through the the daily routine of what I do every day instead of leaving my wife and kids destitute because their version of destitution pales in comparison to someone in Africa or South America, someone else's version of destitution. It's something that I should go try to be helpful and try to do more for. So I, anyway, that's probably a, a sentence that's going to come back and haunt me, but I think that, I think that dissonance is something that our brain creates for our benefit. And I would agree with that because when the, the social movements that encountered a lot of the COVID stuff, um, I fall like I'm Canadian, but I follow us politics kind of like people follow professional sports or I did for a while. <laughs> it's entertaining. What, professional it is <laughs> professional wrestling, you know, it's fake, <laughs> but we're all just like, okay, whatever, you know, we like it. 
But when when things like Black Lives Matter were happening, it, it it does not personally affect me. But I tried to, as much as I could, use the platform of my voice as you know the white guy to spread that message. But the more I got engaged with that, the the more draining it became. And it wasn't just that; there were a couple of others that were happening simultaneously that were more local to me. But but it became very emotionally draining. And I'm wondering if there is a relationship between that and the fact that I did not have direct personal connections, that I was drawing from a well that was kind of fuzzy and abstract. Yes, the cause is important, but the cause itself is too big. I can focus on a person that's affected by it and use that to channel my energy, but not the cause as a whole. It just ends up being more noise kicked out primarily on social media. You, uh, you mentioned feeling a lot of anger at this time. So much. Yeah. So let's talk about the anger. Yeah. At what point did you decide to kind of unbottle everything that you had been holding in for so long? I think it came in stages. I don't think it happened all at once. Um, Before I resigned, so this would have been 20, probably the majority of 2015. I'm still either partially attending or just not attending at all, but I haven't resigned yet, but very, very active in some ex-Mormon Facebook groups and ex-Mormon Reddit and really got into that echo chamber that can happen in those groups where the the, the messaging becomes very self-referential and self-reinforcing and got swallowed up in the churn of that. Um, Reddit has a particular appeal, I think, because it is anonymous or, or potentially anonymous, depending on what one reveals about oneself. And so that was the place for me to just vomit out everything because I had this illusion of anonymity also to a degree in, in these Facebook groups, but never in my real life. But eventually that, that got so amped up that it was now me posting stuff on my wall publicly that caused huge, huge damage to friendships with people that I had grown up with damage to relationships with my family. Um, Real, real, raw, unfiltered anger that was not really something that was healthy to channel the way I did or to, to to let go of the way I did. It was all I could do at the time. It was so overwhelming that it was literally like steam coming out of a valve. Like there was nothing I could do or felt I could do to stop it. I did not know what else to do. And so it wasn't in-person conversations. It was always online where there was this, the screen was in between me and the world. And I wanted people, quote unquote, to hear it and to to, to see me express my pain and my anger. But I wouldn't have that conversation with a person because that would be too intimate. That would be too raw. I wanted to broadcast everything for the world to see and have everything come crashing down, but not be accountable for it, basically. That I thought would run its course. It didn't. It didn't for years. Until the combination of that anger amping up all my mental health symptoms and the desperation to figure out my life. I'm now separated from my wife. It's really looking bleak. It's it's I wasn't suicidal, but there were definitely days of God, it would be so great not to wake up in the morning. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Oh, that would be so relaxing. It was a lot of that. And something shifted in me at or near a point like that where I'm like, this is stupid. I don't want to die. 
I know I don't want to be alive right now, but I don't want to die. Something has to change. And I have, and I, along the way, I've, you know, come into grips with all these people that I've heard and really stupid, dumb things that I've said and, and did along the way in my pain and in my anger to say, something needs to change. And so I started researching what alternative mental health treatments are there to help me break out of this. And that's eventually what led me to learn about psilocybin. And when, so when I started approaching the idea of taking mushrooms, it was purely from a, from a clinical psyche, Western psychiatric medical approach to treat my mental health systems because the SSRI meds that I'd been on for 25 years were not working in the symptoms or the side effects of the medication were worse than the symptoms that they were trying to treat and the symptoms were still happening anyway. Hmm. So I cleared off the meds completely. And then I did my first psilocybin journey, which was five grams. So right out of the gates. Wow. <laughs> you started with five, you started with five grams though. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was the same as um Dan and or Julie. Julie, Julie yeah. Something very, I feel like we were talking about doing the work and wanting to dig in. That's the Mormon way. I'm gonna go big. I'm gonna go and so yes. Was that on purpose, though? Like, did you know what five grams entailed? No, I had no idea. <laughs> I didn't know anything. <laughs> so did you have a guide or anyone or just so you're like, I'm going to like, yeah. Right. So what led to this was the the place I live has had a very active at the time. So this would have been the tail end, summer tail end of 2018. Um, had a very, very active psychedelic community. And most large cities in Canada and the U.S., do either through a Facebook group or meetup, you can just type the name of your community, psychedelic community, and you'll, you're bound to find something or something close to you. Mm -hmm. And so this community was, it wasn't a community of people doing psychedelics together. It was discussion. It was, it was so welcoming because I had been without community having left the church. The ex-Mormon com community was really toxic to me at that point. I wanted something else. So I started attending monthly discussion groups that were led by a particular guy. And he's kind of, at the time, he was the sort of figurehead or spearhead of, of a lot of the activities that were going on. So monthly discussion groups, as well as um, sort of group retreats that he was leading with people that he trusted and had worked with before. And so when I found out about that, I'm like, I, I'm going to, I'm going to try this because what people are saying, their experiences are coming off of, using psilocybin, particularly for anxiety and depression, sounds too compelling not to try. And so people close to me in my immediate household were not huge fans of this, but I ended up doing it anyway <laughs> because I was that desperate. I had, I had latched myself onto this as a potential thing and had I essentially identified with it. So when we talk about identity, identifying with something from the Buddhist perspective, I had I had this vacuum inside me and I latched onto this as like my one great hope. So it was me and I don't know, 10 other people, 10 or 15 other people in this sort of retreat center with a ton of space holders. And we, we had a day and a half before for kind of meditation and discussion and intention setting and journaling uh, and then the ceremony and then a day and a half after of of discussion and integration and meditation. And, and so it was a whole thing. It was like a four day weekend. And it was, it was one of the more transformative experiences of my life. Um, I think, I think at one point I compared it when I compared it to my, my experience in the celestial room in the temple, mm. um, 
it really made it feel like a hotel lobby. Like I had thought I had had spiritual experiences before. I had no idea, no idea. Yeah. And, it, and it was a pivotal moment for me in not fixing my problems, reframing my problems for sure, showing me, showing me the top of the mountain. So if, if the sort of traditional path of the yogi or the guru is to walk the path to the top of the mountain so that they can look out upon the expanse of horizon, what I did was take a helicopter ride to the top of the mountain, which was significant for me because I had been living in such a fog. I didn't even know there was a mountain there, let alone a path up it. But going up in this helicopter ride to the top of the mountain, I could see the view, I could taste it for a little while, and I could see the path that wound its way down the hill. So that when I got back to the bottom, I'm like, oh, I know that that mountain is there. I know there's a top that I can look from, and I know that there's a path that I can follow, and I can probably figure out that path again. And that was really pivotal for me because everything felt so overwhelming and unmanageable in my life that I, I had no idea what to do. Uh, I was taking time off work. I was snapping at my kids all the time. It was just an awful situation. But to have that perspective shift, to have my life be reframed in a way where I could look at it a little bit more objectively and say, you know, these problems are absolutely real, but maybe they're not quite as serious as you think they are. Maybe they're not quite as complex and insurmountable as you think they are. Maybe you can just chip away at them one at a time, take one step and then one step. And so that's, that was really my big practical takeaway was these things are manageable. I can do this. I can overcome whatever is putting me in this position to feel this way. And that led me to other experiences, which led me to therapy, which led me to learning about Buddhism, which led me to meditation, which led me to where I am today. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting because you're basically talking about um, some of these stages. I mean, starting with the anger, angry ex-Mormon, you're, you, you feel duped by the church, you feel angry. And I mean, shout out to the ex-Mormon subreddit. That's a, it's a good support group uh, for people who are in that stage. I mean, I like you, Peter, I eventually had to uh, um, unsubscribe because I just felt like, you know, if you've constantly got new people coming in who are going through that anger phase, then it kind of keeps you sort of in that holding pattern cycling through the anger that you have towards the church, which for me has, has faded significantly. I mean, we, I think we've posted a couple of episodes of the podcast on the, on the ex Mormon subreddit and it, it, it didn't really go anywhere. What didn't get a lot of, didn't get a lot no, of, we don't, get, we don't get a lot of love there. Um, yeah, but I mean, I, I yeah. really credit that, uh, you know, specifically, you know, um, Ex Mo ex Mormon on 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 Reddit, you know Mormon thing, a couple other things as helping my, me through my transition. Same, and I think or there's an important thing there that so much anger, you know, in learning just that this stuff, the, all these experiences you could have had were for this religion, and they were lying to you the whole time. Now, whether that was intentional or they're perpetuating trauma, probably more the latter. Yeah. but you were still being lied to. And that anger has to go somewhere. You can't bottle it up. You've got to process it. Um, and I think though, eventually you get to a spot where, you know, I think there's that, I don't know if it's a Buddhist thing or what, but which wolf wins. You guys heard that, but we've yeah. had two wolves inside yeah, of, you know, the oh, one yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the one, the one you feed was the one that's going to win. And there's something about the loop we can get into in like an ex Mormon Reddit where if we're taking that anger, that justified anger, 
or at least we feel is justified, and then throwing it right back at the church. That's just sending energy to the church and the church feeds off of that. And it, it creates this loop we can get in. It's almost galvanizing for those still in, right? It's like, oh, here yeah. comes the persecution. It's a, there's a galvanizing effect to it. Of, of you that. actually see that happening right now. I um, saw something recently. I, apparently there's a whole big thing going on now with a uh, fair Mormon. So fair Mormon has these mm-hmm. like, yeah. have you guys seen that with, I don't know his name. Um, uh, Kwaku L. Yeah, um, he's like doing all these videos attacking the CES letter and yeah. both sides. It's going, it's getting pretty <laughs> to like death threats, I think, with John or something. Something popped up on a Twitter notification today that they posted some video. I think it's from Inglorious Bastards of the Nazi. Something oh, yeah. put John DeLynn there. It was like, a skin. It, they actually put his face on like a Satan photo. Hmm. Oh, really? Like, yeah, so it's getting. That's well, the outside looking in, these are the kind of things where, where the, the sort of altruistic statement of the only way to win the game is not to play starts to kick in. Like right. I, I just had to, I just had to be hands off and there were similar sort of circular things sort of in the, in the window of time, 2015, 2016, where I was the most active, particularly around the November policy and just the anger that, that came from that. Mm-hmm. But it's it just it's the same cycle over and over and over again, and it's unfortunate that the loudest voices in the grief cycle are the angry ones. If the loudest voices were, say, more of the stuff that you guys discuss on the podcast, I think the landscape would look quite a bit different. But anger is the loudest, and so you you go through. I went through the cycle, and at the exit point where I could have gone out and gone to the next phase of the grief cycle. I missed the exit because everything else was so loud and I got caught up and pulled into another cycle and then another cycle and then another cycle and never was able to break out until I started to sit and say, shouldn't I have like passed through this already? Shouldn't I have processed this? I mean, it's been a while. And by that point it was probably two years longer than it could have taken. Well, Dude, it's funny yeah. to what, Oh, sorry, Mike. No, go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say, it's funny to kind of like, you can actually, there's a, there, we we talk about the dangers of this, but it's kind of fun. There's like a there's like a historical record of of my own journey. Like I've been I've been on Reddit for ten or eleven years. The the most vulnerable I've ever felt is I did tell Mike and my brother my username on Reddit, Ooh. and um, that's a pretty yeah. That I mean that's not like uh, you know posting something on Facebook or Instagram. I mean I was go I was trying to take the church to task for a while there, and so every once in a while if I want to really um, you know, get down on myself, or if I'm in that mode where I just really want to feel bad and, and be embarrassed about myself, I go and I look at my old posts and comments on Reddit. Um, because I still have the same username, I've just changed a lot, you know, and I, I like going through there, but I was really, really angry at the church and at the world and at everything that it all represented. And I mean, thank you, mushrooms. Thank God for um entheogens who that, that I feel helped me find love and kindness for the people who I love the most who are still in the Mormon church. You know, it's an interesting journey. But even as we talked about at the very beginning today was sometimes you just have to let yourself feel it. So, you know, maybe it took two years longer than was ideal for you, Peter, but at the same time you were letting yourself feel it. You were purging all of those things that you had bottled up for so long. And so I think it's okay, you know, just let it run its course and eventually you'll be where you need to be. The dichotomy of 
I wish it had happened sooner versus everything happens as, at the time that it needs to is a, is a tricky balance for me someday. And what came out of therapy was one of the many things that came out of therapy was a deep realization that I had suppressed so many of my emotions that I didn't really, for so long, that I didn't really know what it meant to feel things. So when an unfamiliar emotion bubbles up in the strength that it did, I already didn't have the practice to know what to do with it. Couple that with the fact that I had been taught my whole life that anger is an emotion that is bad. It is bad to feel angry. It is an emotion that is to be avoided at all costs because when you're angry, you're susceptible to uh, influence. Yeah, contentions of the devil. It's, yeah. And I had internalized so many of those things to a degree that I didn't realize. And it's one thing to stop going to church and, and to stop doing the day-to-day practices, but it's another thing to realize, wow, I have a lot of really unhealthy attitudes towards women. I have a lot of really unhealthy attitudes towards emotions. Wow, I have the emotional maturity of a 15-year-old, and I'm in my 40s. Stuff that I never would have thought to look for unless other people had pointed it out. And that's, that's, my, that's been my frustration, is how much time was wasted because I was stunted and did not have the tools to get myself out of it. So there's that angle, but then I agree with you completely. It took as long as it took because that's how long it needed to take. Yeah. And it wouldn't have happened a minute sooner. And so I've, I get more often than not to a place of peace with that. That's the idea of presence that whatever happened happened and I can't change it. And there's no use in ruminating about what might've been because I can't do anything about it. And I wouldn't be who I am without those experiences. I do sometimes dip into I wish my process had not hurt so many other people along the way yeah. and had caused so much unnecessary suffering in their lives. I'm fine with what I did up to the point where what I did hurt other people. And I really hurt some other people in ways that I deeply, deeply, I want to say regret. I regret it, yet I'm working to come to terms and be at peace with it. I'm not 100% of the way there, but but Yeah. Fine with what happened to me, really not fine with what I did to other people. But again, going back to you didn't have the perspective to know any different because you don't know what you don't know until someone pointed it out for you. So, you know, it's, of course, easier said than done not to feel guilt in some sort of way. But also, you don't know what you don't know. And there is value, I think, in hearing that message over and over and over again, Um because Mike, your analogy of like digging through the muck, I've had a similar vision, a similar uh, sensation of clawing away at a wall made of clay, wet clay, and pulling bits and pieces off. And sometimes it doesn't seem like it's making any difference. It's the repetition and the continual digging that makes the difference. So, Shalise, if I hear those messages over and over again from myself, and I hear them externally, that's more help in digging away until eventually a hole gets poked through. And, oh, there is something on the other side of this wall of muck. And I'm, I'm, I'm not cleared all of it yet, but I can see that there is something on the other side. And that gives me a boost to say, this is not forever. The, the muck stops on this particular issue at some point. And there is, there is an, a light at the end of the tunnel. So with the idea that everything happens when it should happen, I, I am curious about this. Um, what would today, Peter, uh, give as advice to 
angry Peter. Ooh, okay. Um, Good. That is an excellent question. I don't know. I would. I I would not have listened. I wouldn't have listened. I was not in a place to hear it. And what I would say now makes perfect sense to me, but it's like, stop going on Reddit, go sit and meditate. Stop blaming other people, except that this is a situation that you have to deal with and nobody else is going to fix it. I wouldn't have listened to that. So funny. And I'm sure that there's something that, you know, two years from now, me would give as advice to me now. I'm like, what? Listen. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's a cool take. I wouldn't have listened. Um, Cause you do see in the journey, cause you were talking about steam and how much steam had built up and there needs to be a release valve for that steam, you know? Yeah. And it is a release valve. Now I think there's something that when it, we get into that loop and we're letting off steam and feeding that steam back and it becomes a cycle where we realize where we're, we get addicted to that cycle because we don't want to address the pain that's causing the steam. You know what I mean? There's, there's underlying pain that's creating steam constantly and it's swirling, it's swirling. And so, yeah, we need to feel that. But there's, I think, feel like with anger, it needs to go somewhere. But there's a level below. There's pain below the anger that we really don't get to if we stay in this. And it's almost like it becomes an addictive pattern. Very much so. I mean, I, I knew anger. I knew I had been angry for as long as I could remember. It was uncomfortable, but it was known. And would not have been able to articulate to myself that I was afraid of what would happen if I didn't feel the anger anymore. Who am I if not this? So one thing I didn't, I didn't touch on was that my identity as a human being just absolutely collapsed after I left the church. I had no idea who I was, not just because I, I didn't have that community anymore, but I didn't know, I didn't know what existence was. I didn't know what life, the universe and everything was if all of those things I had been taught for my whole life weren't true. And again, there's nothing new or groundbreaking about that. Every human in existence has had some variation on this experience, I would imagine. But what I wasn't able to consciously realize is the fear of that kept me in the anger because it was known. I would rather be angry and crippled by it than risk giving up that anger and find another way because it would be new and unfamiliar. And I don't know how to do new and unfamiliar. I don't feel equipped to do new and unfamiliar. And, and I, I can see in hindsight that that's what was happening, but I never would have been able to, I never would have been able to articulate that to myself. Wow. You just gave me like a big moment. I know I had a chill just there for a second. Yeah. And I think what it is for me is you were, you're describing it. It's such a loss of identity when you're leaving the church, such a blow to your ego self that's been built up your whole life that now your ego is like, who, who am I? There's a, what am I anymore? Who am I? So it latched onto the anger for a while. Mm-hmm. This is who I am. This is me. And, and this is a solid the- food source, a yeah. very solid and reliable food source. Yeah. I need this. I need it. I need it. I need it to survive. This is me now, you know? And so, Yeah. It, you don't want to, if you lose the anger, then now who you, are you? Now there's just, what's, what, what, what does it get replaced with? Okay. So in, in the first mushroom trip that I had journey, I had, and the second one about six months later, the same thing happened twice, which was, it was the classic ego death experience, but the deep sense of oneness with 
everything and everyone. And in that, particularly in that group setting, when you have 15 other people around you going through a similar experience at the same time, we all would start setting each other off. Someone would laugh and then everybody would laugh. Someone would cry and then everybody would cry. And it was very much a sensation of these are all little bits and pieces of me. The, the smallness of what I thought I was is really insignificant when I start to look at all of the totality of what I quote unquote really am, that I'm just poking through the fabric a little bit in this one manifestation who happens to be angry right now. In the face of that, what does being angry even mean? How insignificant is that thing that at once I thought was overwhelming really just isn't that big a deal anymore and is absolutely manageable. And so, yeah, in the micro level, consuming and feeding the ego. But as soon as I was able to take that step back and have that reinforced a few months later, gave me the wherewithal to really start to look at building the identity and not fighting the anger, not pushing against it, but really that sensation of letting it go, being okay with saying, I can let this go and build something new in the space that it used to occupy. And it'll be okay if I do that. So you would say then through mushrooms, what really got you to be able to start letting go of that anger was the perspective change that you are one with everything. 100%. Absolutely. It's hard for me to describe those journeys. Um, I This is a bit of a sidebar. I won't get into it too much. I am investigating the possibility that I might have a, a, a thing with my memory that's called aphantasia which is related to another condition called severely deficient autobiographical memory. Essentially, it means I can't form visual images in my head. So when I think back to those journeys, I didn't have visuals. Mm -hmm. I have one image that I can recall from any of my journeys. And it's kind of like a, what I think source looks like, which is just a big glowing orb. If you think of the black hole from the movie Interstellar, it kind of looks like that. So all of my impressions, all of the things that I took back, and they were no less powerful experiences for not having visuals, but they were senses of something or emotions of something. So a sense of perspective, a sense of my true nature as something bigger than this that's what I retained out of it. And so those perspective shifts and not, not the, ooh, the pretty visuals as a distraction are what really worked for me to the degree that I I've tossed this around in my head a couple of times that the four or five, six hours I was in the medicine are a side effect of them. They are not the effect. The effect was the six months of integration that I had after that experience and the things that I was able to learn and do. If we talk about this in terms of medicine, I'm much more comfortable speaking about it like that. You're going to have to endure some experiences for a few hours before the medicine really starts to work. That's a framing I've not heard before. Well, I love that. Because for people who can form those images, it's very, very much front and center. It seems to be the very much the focal point. And I love a good trip story as much as anybody. But it feels like sometimes that gets in the way of what could really come from it. Man, I love that. Love that too. And it's it's describing what I was learning, like with uh, with the bufo that I did uh, a month ago or so. The experience it's, itself blasted me off, you know. But even that night, it was like, well, how much have I really changed? But the medicine has worked in me for the last month in these subtle ways. Um, it, yeah, that that's just interesting. So it really speaks to intention. I think if somebody intends to take a gram and go to a concert and have a great time, they're going to 
see some pretty visuals and the music's going to sound awesome and they'll have some great memories of that experience and that could probably be the end of it but the intention that i had going in i think was a little bit a little bit over the top like i'm going to change my life and i'm going to be cured of my mental health issues it didn't really work the way i expected but it has come sort of around the long way to getting there to i really wanted to fundamentally alter the course of my life and that's exactly what happened I don't know if I could have done that on one gram, but I probably would have made a significant dent, but five grams on one and 5.6 on another were what I needed to the point where I I don't really feel a particular draw to do it again. Wow. So then I guess then the question becomes after, so after the anger and then when you're in the integration process, I, I have a story about when I first, when I started going to therapy, I, I, uh, I think I've mentioned on the podcast that growing up and in my early adulthood, I was, I, I had a lot of anger issues and I had short temper and stuff like that. So I started seeing a therapist and I talked to her about how I've been spending the last few years trying to completely get rid of that and to eliminate that whole concept of, of anger from my life. And I wanted to be this peaceful Buddha type of thing. And she was like, no, the anger doesn't just go away. Anger is an emotion. I mean, that's something that we all feel. Everyone feels that. And if you're not processing that in a healthy way, then it's just building up until eventually it's going to blow. And so she had me do this uh, exercise where she was like, I want you to throw a temper tantrum. I want you to go somewhere, break shit, scream, yell, do all these things. So I went to uh, the DI. This is probably a bad story to tell. So I went to the, I went to the DI and I bought a shitload of like plates uh, dishware, glasses, that kind of thing. I put them in my truck and I drove to this area of town where there's like some abandoned warehouses. There's one where it's like open air, no roof, like uh, three brick walls and then just an open entrance. And I threw the most tiring, sweaty temper tantrum you've ever seen. I'm breaking plates, I'm smashing them, I'm throwing things against the wall, I'm kicking. And sure enough, I mean, I was just exhausted. You know, you throw that kind of a temper tantrum, you're just absolutely spent. And then in the clarity that came after that, I'm like, well, shit, now I got all this like broken plates and glasses that I've left here at this thing. Now, this thing is a complete pigsty anyway. I mean, it's been abandoned for years and there's, you know, shit all over the place. But in my clarity, I was like, well, I caused this mess. So then I got in my car drove to the grocery store. I bought a push broom, a broom and a, and a dustpan. And I went back and I cleaned up my mess. And not only did I clean up my mess, I cleaned up the mess that had existed there previous to me. So at some point in history, some very confused person has walked into an immaculately clean, tiny little section of this abandoned warehouse and been like, why the fuck is it so clean in here? But that leads to my question of, okay, so you're talking about the integration process. I'm wondering what life looks like for you right now. And, f- and, and bigger than that, how can we bring that to the world? How can we bring that to more people? We have people that are on the, our little uh, Facebook thing. We have people that listen to the podcast. How do we integrate this as a collective conscious and do more to clean up this mess and make it better than it was when we went in there to throw a little fucking temper tantrum? Just real quick, really quick, Peter, before that, just, you know, it reminds me of Doug and, you know, it wouldn't be a Mormons on Mushrooms episode without masturbation, 
talk. Yeah, but. I was waiting for when well, I was trying to rack my brain for a masturbation story. I masturbated <laughs> earlier this week. I could have told that story, but <laughs> no, but it reminds me, I don't, I forgot which episode it was, but we were talking about how, like when we were supposed to not masturbate and we'd be traveling for business or something and you'd go through that or even traveling or like at home as a teenager, you're obsessed with not masturbating. Right. And it, it, it consumes you that night. Like, am I going to do that? Am I not, you know, and, let, and then if it's like, oh, if I can just go release this, then it's like, I can go explore my, that I've satisfied that urge and now I'm free to go explore. It seems still, very similar instead with what of you, letting it build up until you're painting the wall of the hotel bathroom. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Shalise's face there. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> sorry, Shalise, that was not great. <laughs> but it reminds me of that with your anger, with that anger story, right? So the anger has to go somewhere. You could have been there and like channeled that on a subreddit for a while, right? And just really fed it and like done that, or you just go and release it in some way. And now you you said that clarity that comes afterwards. It's like, oh, okay, I'm not angry right now. So yeah, was- yeah, that's it exactly. And not and and to pull on that a little bit, I, I think I had a I have had a sense periodically of of anger is like a thing that takes up volume, like it takes up a physical amount of space. And then to say, do a particular meditation and and let that let that pass through me, let that go, and to look at it from the other side, I'm going. That's it. That's all it was. That's what I've gotten so worked up about. Really? It's, it's to the point where it's almost embarrassing at times, how much I let things build up that would have just not been a big deal. Fear was always a huge thing for me. Fear that if I do X, Y, or Z, or don't do X, Y, or Z, something horrible will happen. And that was one of them. If I, if I let this go, or I work through this, or I process it, something terrible is going to happen. But the more I practice that and the more th- terrible things don't happen, the more I'm like, okay, it's a little easier now. I can do this again. I can do this again. And so I think my take on your question, Doug, is it, it's tricky for me because after those first two, after that first mushroom experience, I became sort of the the evangelist. I was that space of everybody needs to do this. Oh my God. I was, I was obnoxious. It was gross. What I didn't realize is that my experience is not transposable in anybody else's experience. I can't say because I experienced X, Y, and Z, that's a prescriptive approach that other people can follow. And it will work for them the same way it worked for me. It took me a while to get there. What I can say now is that that is the motivation as to why I initially reached out to, to want to talk to you guys, to want to participate in the Facebook group is simply that, to share my experiences, because some nugget of what I've experienced is going to resonate with somebody else, not necessarily even in a way that I expected, not because I'm saying, here, I experienced this, now you go do this, just by telling the story. So I don't really know what, I don't really know what there is to do other than literally this i think sometimes to kind of the the great things that have happened in society you know amazon is not a great thing for society but it's a good example jeff bezos was sitting somewhere one day and he's like huh i should start an online bookstore and he sat and he talked to some people like we should totally start an online bookstore and then amazon happened yeah every single great majestic amazing thing that happened in history every single one of them started with conversations like this without 
really knowing what would happen or what would come of it. Something is going to get said in this conversation that is going to strike somebody else that we may not even know or may not even subscribe to the podcast right now. It could be a year from now. I have no idea. Hello, person in the future. <laughs> I have no idea. So the most I can do is share my story as authentically as I can. And for people that don't resonate with it, sorry to take up your time. For people that did, I great, awesome. I hope it helps you. My experience is my experience and it's nobody else's experience, but the way I express my experience might help somebody else with theirs. Amen. Hell yeah. I love I, that. I like <laughs> shouting out the person in the future. Like that's like what probably the thing that resonated most, most with me. Hello, future person. You look great today. You're beautiful. Thank you for joining us. And I love you. I hope that we get in contact soon. Prophetic One of the thing here. Yeah. One of the things that, that I mentioned, this sort of memory thing that I've been working on, the, the severely deficient autobiographical memory, I got to remember the acronym. What it means is that I have huge gaps in my memory that are just not there. I don't remember my kids' first steps. I don't remember their first words. There's big swaths of, of occurrences in my life that I know happened, but I can't put myself back there. I can't remember them. And that's paired with this lack of ability to visualize. And at the risk of self-diagnosing, I've been exploring this. The reason that's significant is when it came to meditation, when it came to being present, when it came to mindfulness, it was like super, super easy. So when I say things half-jokingly like, hello, person from the future, I am really, really comfortable sitting in a space of time is an illusion. The past, present, and future are happening simultaneously. It's like, yeah, and I like chocolate ice cream. Like those two things in my head occupy the same kind of space, and I don't have any kind of problem with it. So I almost have like induced Buddhism to a certain degree simply because of this thing that may or may not have to do with the structure of my brain. Um, Induce Buddhism. Nice. I like yeah. it. I don't have a choice but to be mindful is, or to be present in the moment is kind of what it feels like at times. So it's almost like a cheat code, I guess. <laughs> well, I, 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 mean, I can see that in you. you. You seem like a very present person. I'm going to forget almost everything we talk about five <laughs> minutes after we end this call. <laughs> but I'll remember yeah. how it felt. Yes. Huh. Interesting. Oof. Interesting. Huh? So Shalice, I actually had a question for you about that. And I, we talked about this a little bit on the Facebook group, the idea of past lives. And I've done a past life meditation and I, and I got some stuff from it, but nobody ever talks about future lives. And so mm -hmm. if time is a construct, if we're experiencing all these things simultaneously, why aren't we having more future life regressions? <laughs> well, it's interesting that you say that because I think it's just because most of humanity doesn't agree that time is not linear. And so no one wants to talk about the future because that would mean admitting that everything is happening simultaneously, which I don't think a lot of people are on board with. And so it also, I think, lends to the fact of you probably could go to someone and ask to see a future life. I don't know. Maybe you can't. I feel like you could. But if people already have this idea that future isn't happening already, then they probably won't be able to get in the, the mindset or the space needed to experience said life. Does that make sense? Yes. Mm. That's just my perspective on it. Because when I've watched um, different shows where people channel other beings, it's funny because most of the beings that are channeled 
get irritated with that question. And they're like, oh, past, sure, we'll call it past lives if you want. But <laughs> most of them prefer to use incarnation because it's not, there's no like time to it, time stamp on it. But, like in this incarnation, in a different incarnation, it's not past, present, or future. Yeah, and that that totally that totally makes sense. We we experience things through the lens that we are equipped to experience them through. Yeah, that's and, very well said. Well, and I think that yeah, that we we talk about past lives and and readings and stuff like that on this podcast, but like it, you're you're making me think about um uh in in Slaughterhouse 5, what's the name of the main guy? Oh, if I know, what are you talking about? Billy, Billy Pilgrim. <laughs> Billy Pilgrim. So Billy Pilgrim, yeah. you know, the whole concept of Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five is that he describes looking at the his life, and so I'm just talking about one life here, but but it's it, I guess it 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 plays. He describes it as he's standing back, looking at a mountain range. I think that he says, or like a like some kind of like a horizon, and he can look over here and and pinpoint the time in his life when he enlisted in the army and, and served in the military, or he can, or he can look over to the other side and he can look at when he was on his deathbed and visiting with his children and grandchildren and stuff like that. Because I mean, Vonnegut doesn't say that all of uh, time and space is happening uh, concurrently, but he does flatten that circle out and say a person could step back and look at their current life as one flattened circle where they can visit the times in their future, present, and past to revisit that memory. And I'm using the word memory loosely, I think. And may, this might be a, a really bad interpretation of the book Slaughterhouse Five, but it made when you asked about what about future life regressions or future life progressions, or I, I don't know how we would say that, but. Uh, it, that's what that makes me think of is you need to just, I guess, find the right per I, I can't do past life readings. Uh, I think Mike and Shalise have both had those before. I don't have the wherewithal to even, I haven't done one and I can't, I certainly couldn't do it for other people, but I'll bet we could find somebody out there who does future life readings too, right? Yeah. Like someone has, someone has cracked the code to look at something that is the explosion and expansion of light but they've looked they've they've figured out a way to tap into looking at it all on a flat 2d map right and just tell us more about it well what you're talking about essentially is the akashic because many people get akashic ah. readings because they want to know like which path to take but it's so funny actually i just had a dream like two nights ago it was legit and i was literally jumping timelines from moment to moment so like I had zipped this lady up for this like Emmy award show. I zipped up her jumpsuit and she walks away. And as she walks away, she's wearing something different. And I say to someone, I'm like, what happened to the white jumpsuit? And they're like, what are you talking about? And then she got like 10 steps ahead and it was like a dress, a totally different dress. I'm like, what happened to the one before? And no one knew what I was talking about. And I realized <laughs> that I was jumping timelines because there are endless possibilities that are happening simultaneously, which is why you hear people say uh, align to your highest timeline, because there are so many different scenarios. And that's why you hear about like these experiences where, who was it? Everyone knew that this 
famous part was it Nelson Mandela that died in a, a jail, but then like the other half of the population was like, no. Oh he's- yeah, the Mandela effect. You're talking about the Mandela yeah. effect. Yeah. So even just like thinking about it in those terms where nothing is really concrete like we perceive it to be anyway, because there's so many different realities happening almost simultaneously. And then another thing, Peter, which you made me think about when you asked that question um, before was I probably have seen future lives in meditation, but just assumed that it was a past life where I'm like on a different planet dressed like head to toe and jewels, like looking all alien like. And in my mind, I was like, oh, that's a past life. But who's to say it wasn't a future one? Right. Love that. Gold necklaces there, Shalice? Or? Yes. All the jewels. Yeah. The pain, the long uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I, I'm so glad someone else dreams about the Emmy Awards too, because that comes up. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is two in a row, I think, where we've talked about the Emmys, right? Like you had I think so, yeah. Um, but it, Hey, Shalice, was it someone famous Was it, that you were zipping up? She felt like a big deal. I don't remember. Maybe it was you. Maybe it was you. Well, I mean, obviously it was in a dream, so it was you. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. It's crazy. So these are the kind of threads that that I, or rabbit holes that I used to really go down. And then I would start to get anxious about not being able to figure it out, not being able to come mm-hmm. to some kind of intellectual concrete conclusion. And it and eventually became self-contradictory. Where I kind of land with stuff like this is it feels it's it feels like a fun exercise. And, and I love listening to, to other people's stories. And I love picking up little tidbits here and there, sometimes even when I least expect it. But the one of the very few visual or emotional sensations that I have from that very first journey was this really powerful sense of me being like that source or that energy or God or whatever you want to call it. People get angsty when I call it God. Source feels more accurate. That going in was waking up from a dream and resting for a little bit and stretching and saying, oh, that was awesome. I'm going to go back in again. And that's what coming back here is like but also simultaneously feeling like all of these incarnations that are happening simultaneously are an effort to experience as many different things as possible in as many different ways as possible. And really the only way to get an authentic experience is to not remember what I am for certain periods of time while that takes place. And the more I've really sort of sat with that and felt comfortable, the more stunned I've become as how not dissimilar that is from the plan of salvation Mm. that we're come here for a test that our memories are going to be wiped. So it's going to be a fair test. There's all these different pieces from all these different things I've learned that have come to, that have been construction elements in this story that I tell myself. And I'm not at the point of saying, I know this is it quite the opposite. This is a fun story that feels right for now based on what I know, but I fully expect it to change next week or the week after or the month after. Because by saying that I know what this is, I know who I really am. All I'm really doing is excluding all those other possibilities. And I spend a lifetime pushing all but one possibility out of my life and it nearly destroyed me. And I would rather not do that again. Well, yeah, I wait, feel wait, that. Wait. And, Is that something you're willing to talk about? All yeah. but one possibility? Oh, the, the church being the one, the plan of salvation being it. That was oh, the... okay. Sorry. I guess yeah. I, I didn't quite catch that. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, but that hits on something that actually came up in my past life reading I did with Ashley, who was a 
the, I guess on our podcast, um, was super cool experience. Um, but in one of them, uh, she encouraged me to meditate. And so during this whole time, I'm having fun with it. And also my inner critics, like, you know, chiming up, but I let him do it, but he was having fun with it too, I think. Um, and she's like, I think you should meditate and talk to this old, I was this old shaman guy in Brazil. Um, and just give me goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of cool. Uh, there's a lot we could go into there, but she's like, and then she sees my face and she's like, okay, I'm getting the impression when he wants you to communicate with him, he wants you to have fun with it. He wants you to be like Indiana Jones, bring that spirit of adventure to this meditation. Cause I can just tell you're going to be super serious about it. I'm like, well, that's me, you know? And that's us more like, oh, it, it has to be the one true thing. And, and, you know, we were baptized at eight and missions or, you know, getting married young or kids young, or we just grew up fast. So of course we treat life so seriously, but some of this can be like, you know what, I don't know what to make of past lives or future lives or this, but man, it's fun to explore it, right? Or fun to see what comes up. And maybe if some of it's, it becomes an active imagination, but that active imagination helps us get back to like, you know, has some nuggets for us to learn from. Um, or it can just be fun. I keep, I keep wanting to make it a purpose, but it can be a fun thing too, you know? Anytime I feel like I have to, I have to do something. I have to understand something. I have to figure something else. That's old thought patterns telling me that, A, it's knowable. Well, it probably isn't, but B, everybody else knows it. Why don't you? Oh man! When clearly everybody else does not, and that is that is a, a perspective shift that helps bring up old thought patterns from things that I didn't even realize I had that are directly related to my growing up. My not even just my church experience, but just the family dynamic that I grew up in. By having such wildly different experience from what I've had before, when those patterns come up they're they're like shining a new light on them and so the more unfamiliar experiences i have the more of those things i'm discovering which then gives me a new thing to process and work through and let go it's the stuff that i don't know that i still have to do that really sometimes gives me pause or concerns me like this idea that this process is not going to be like okay i've cleaned it all out i'm cleared i'm good letting go of that and saying this probably will never stop through my whole life and, and learning to accept that the process is life. It's not a thing that has a finite end point that I'm, I go through phases where I'm really uncomfortable because what we were talking about before I get tired, but at the same time, how exciting to not stagnate, how exciting to continually have new things to discover and work on. And, and typically things that I'm discovering are something I never would have contemplated being interested in or ever having heard of. And yet I weave these things into aspects of my life to the degree that they start to become integral to it. And it's making me a better person as a result, not, not better and more worthy or greater than anybody else, but, but more skillful at living my life and navigating my life with empathy and compassion and love uh, than I ever have before. I love uh, Peter. I love your balance of, it's something I'm kind of uh, diving into a little bit, your balance of presence and pragmatism or, or, um, I, I guess you're very logical. You're, 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 you're obviously uh, you've thought about a lot of this stuff as well. How do you, 
this question is out of left field, but how do you, uh, where do you land on the matrix thing? Because really, if we're, if we're very present and we're talking about memories are simply coded in and therefore so is imagination, so is the idea of uh, meditative time travel, going into the future, going into the past. I mean, it's all the same thing. It's just some kind of code. Where is that something you've given thought to, or is that just me uh, getting really excited about what you're talking about and thinking that there's someone who's tried to solve this fucking equation as well? No, I've definitely pulled on that, and and it becomes it becomes almost that paradox thing that I was talking about before. As soon as I get close to a paradox, I know I'm onto something really new. I was really drawn to sort of the standard Exmo playlist of movies that people recommend. So the Matrix, Pleasantville, The Truman Show, but the Matrix in particular, I. When that movie came out, I, it was during a time when I was really, really into movies, and it really struck me. And because I was struggling with the church without realizing I was struggling with the church, and so it became this anthem to me of this is this is a narrative description of my experience leaving the church, waking up and leaving the church. What I've realized since then is that it's happened again. The Matrix now to me represents my experience with mushrooms and therapy and meditation and mindfulness. It's me waking up from what I thought the construct of my life was after Mormonism. And so I'm fully waiting for that to happen again or expecting that to happen again at some point with some other aspect of, of life that I wouldn't even fathom right now. And it's turtles all the way down. I'm sure as to whether it's, it's all engineered. There is a part of me that is comfortable with that idea that this is all engineered to be a particular type of experience to add another item on the shelf as to whoever's running the show here. And if that's just me and I don't remember, or if it is legitimately a separate being, I don't know. But I remember, I remember an impression from my first journey where I was in this place of feeling that, that oneness and feeling in a very playful mood and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to put stuff out into the universe, because I know I'm going to forget this, but I'm going to put stuff out there as road markers to remind myself so that I can pop up from time to time and remember who I am. So I'm going to throw stars out there and I'm going to put them in particular patterns. I'm going to call them constellations so that every time someone sees a constellation, I'll remember that I did that. I'm going to create music because I know I can in other incarnations of myself, I can put little coded messages to myself in music or lyrics and it will help me to remember. That kind of thing happens a lot. I'm going to create this particular landscape over here because I know that when the light hits it just right and I'm driving into it after coming off the highway and I see the mountains in the background, I'm going to remember that I did that. Does that sound crazy? No. No. (laughs) You're blowing my, that sounds amazing. I mean, yes, but that's what we're all about. We're all about the crazy. Because I always remember when we were in, in Zion, this comes up to me a lot too. Like Zion, in Zion, Doug and I were tripping. And I remember even joking that like, yeah, remember when we we needed these people in the trailer next to us to be kind of loud and stay up too late at night just to kind of irk us a little bit. So yeah, we had to go in that time and create this family that would come and look at look how like devious we are because now this whole family is existing just so we they can be here in this moment because we need we need a family there next to us. 
<laughs> Mike, you remember that you were fucking with me that night because you had me convinced that was real because you had to stop me from going over and asking them about the reality of their existence and being like, <laughs> what are you what are you guys really up to? Like, what's happening here? Yeah. I mean, well, they would have been really real. I mean, they, they're living their real lives, but they were doing it just because we needed some people there. So you understood <laughs> that. I thought they were like, you know, those like uh, uh, Belgian or maybe not Belgian Dutch cuckoo clocks, like the little ornate, like the little uh, uh, like lifescape is happening. I thought Mike was saying that this was all just this clockwork happening. And I kept pointing out to him, there's that fucking guy out there unrolling the, 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 tarp or unrolling putting his flag up and it's just like oh it must be certain amount of it must be the certain time because we can hear the flag going up and we can hear the awning going out and i was like mike i'm gonna go talk to this guy about his existence you're like no 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 you're not so here's maybe a different way of saying the same thing carl sagan has a quote that says if you wish to make an apple pie from scratch you must first invent the universe and (laughs) i love it's It's true in the sense, like, what does from scratch mean? Everything has something that precedes it. So if you take that and you combine it with the idea of everything is happening simultaneously, and then you combine that with saying, I'm source. If I snap my fingers, what I needed in this moment to have this moment the way it is, is to manifest all of you, to create this podcast, to create the the infrastructure required to have the podcast, and to create all of history back to the Big Bang in order to have this moment happen the particular way it is. And it happens instantly. You guys manifested me because you needed something in this moment to have this particular conversation the way it's happening right now. I came on this podcast and I'm like, I don't know why I'm here. I'm just going to go with it. I still don't know why I'm here, but I have some part to play. So I'm going to, I'm going to play it because somebody manifested me being here and I manifested you, but it's all the same thing. So in the matrix example, there's almost this nefarious overtone that the matrix was was developed by someone or something with nefarious purposes, with ill intent. I created it. And I create it over and over and over every time I need it for something until I don't. And then I create something else. And I'm dreaming that I'm doing this. There's no way to validate or verify this scientifically. There's a part of me that really pushes against that because I've been very, like you mentioned, I'm very sort of analytical, empirical, evidence-based, have been for a very, very long time. That notion of that's the nature of existence really, really rubs part of me the wrong way. But I've had too many experiences anecdotally with my data set of one to this point and heard too many stories from other people to be able to see it any other way. If... I do, in fact, have this memory condition, for lack of a better word. It only reinforces that. It's pushing me to a point where now that all the trauma that I've processed is out of the way, this is what I'm left with. Feeling like time doesn't exist and that I, that I live in the moment. Not against my will, but without thinking that there is an illusion apart from this moment. God, this sounds so crazy. It I have not. become a hippie. I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to actually, Mike, can I answer the, his question about why is he on the podcast? Is that, yeah. uh-huh. here's the answer. Mike and I talk frequently, text and phone calls. And one of the things we keep saying is like, doesn't that Peter guy seem interesting? Like, doesn't he seem like someone who would be of like a very different angle, uh, like a different, uh, voice, a different opinion, a different way of looking at things than what we've had on the podcast so far. We were both like, yeah, he does. 
And then, uh, you know, you and Mike had a conversation on the phone and, and, and the text and it led to, it led to right now. And it seems to me like it was a perfect timing not to get into the week that I've had, but this conversation has been the perfect timing for me. Um, so I guess maybe I am the reason you're on this podcast so that you, because I manifested it and needed it and didn't know I needed it. But like eight months ago, I was like, in December of 2020, I'm going to really, really need to have a conversation with someone like Peter who shares some of the things that you feel and, and talks about some of the non-woo-woo stuff and comes at it from an analytical uh, point of view. So I guess I, you're welcome. I'm the reason that you're on this and it's from maybe even a year ago. So that's why. Cool. And my particular take does tend towards skepticism. Yeah. I think maybe, yeah, skepticism is probably the best way to do it. Not because I'm trying to discount anybody's experience, but because I think it makes a good jumping off point for conversations. I've been in an, I lived a life where I didn't have a choice but to accept what was given me at face value. And it has engendered in me what I think now is a healthy skepticism, a, a desire to test things, a desire to try things out, to push back a little bit against the surface level stuff to hopefully get to a deeper truth. And I think there is a space for that alongside all of the other guests that you've had and all the other guests that you're going to have, because it simply takes the conversation in a different way than it might have gone otherwise. There is as much risk in people who have had these experiences of forming an echo chamber as there is on the ex-Mormon Reddit. Echo chambers in and of themselves are problematic. Not bad. I'm not judging, judging them. But there, I have seen and experienced in the local psychedelic community that I'm part of problematic situations that arise when you have this swirl of thought with no external input or no, no one feeling like they can offer a contrary opinion to the predominant narrative. Oh, we're all one in this great, beautiful thing. Like, hang on, let's just talk about that a bit. Let's give it a bit of critical thinking. And what has inevitably happened for for me, my own personal experience, is there's a richness that comes out of that kind of conversation that to me is worth more than what just having that stuff on the surface would have given me. Oh man, there's a value in the journey, yeah. And I do love, and this is going back to an earlier point you made, and I know we probably have to wrap up here soon, but um, your journey is your journey. And I know we can easily, especially with the conditioning we received in Mormonism, that there's one true path. We can fall into that even leaving the church. And, you know, when we try to deconvert our Mormon family, you know, oh, you don't care that Joseph Smith had 14-year-old wives? Why don't you care, you know? that you want them to follow your path. And even now in path in my path to healing, you know, I'll share a book with my wife and she's just not interested in it. I'm like, well, how can you not be interested in it? But, and then vice versa, she'll do a meditation that didn't resonate with me or something, or, uh, you know, we're all doing our own journey. And I loved how you were saying, we're saying that earlier, Peter is like, what you can do is tell your story and maybe it resonates with somebody, but we can't really offer a formula for how people go on their journey. And I think that's, yeah. In the past, when I've been in that space of needing to needing other people to find the church untrue the same way I did, 
what I really was saying was, I'm not confident enough in what I think is the case here. I need other people to believe it too, because it's going to validate what I'm saying. You have to change the way you believe to make me feel more comfortable. And that's one of the bigger shifts that I think has happened to me. If you don't think the same thing as me, tell me more about that. I want to hear it. I want to hear all of it because I am at this point confident enough in what my own experience has been since I've undertaken all these things in the last couple of years that I don't care what anybody else thinks. Unless I'm not causing harm to somebody, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. My concern about people in the church is more rooted around if somebody's suffering but they've chosen to be there from an informed perspective. They know the history. They know the problematic issues. That's fine. If they're, if they're in the place that I was where they just didn't know and they're living out their life without that information, that's where I get a little itchy. Hmm. But that, well, you could say that about anything. I can't inform everybody about everything. I can only do what I can do. This is one of those ways. Oh. I love it. And, you know, Peter, I'm so glad we brought you on today. And I do think there's some bigger, I mean, to Doug's point earlier, I just think, you know, I, your help with the Facebook group, I don't know. I think there's a, a bigger role for you in all of this that we're doing. And I, I'm just feeling into what that is. And, you know, hopefully with further conversations, we can figure that out more. But I think, uh, I think, you know, going back to the surrender experiment and some of this, maybe we can maybe cut out, but like just people coming into your life at certain times and the universe putting us together in certain ways and the mycelium, we talked about this in the Steve episode, connecting people at certain times. I think you start seeing the synchronicities. Yep. And I've experienced that too many times to pretend it's not a thing. So all I can do to contribute to that is put myself out there and accept what comes without trying to make anything happen simply to validate my own existence. Why so I don't know where this is going to go. Maybe it goes nowhere. Maybe this is it, but the recording helps one other person five years from now. That's fine with me. It's going to help way more than one and way more than it's going to be sooner than five years. It's already helped yeah. one. I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> it's done. Huzzah sharing your story. Thank you so much. Valuable insight. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that was awesome, Steve. I, I, um, where where you just finished will probably where the, be where the recording finished. That's a really good place to cue the music, but thank you so much for doing this today. This, this was mind blowing. Just fantastic. I needed it. I was super nervous. I was really nervous. I, um, I know how you feel, man. <laughs> I still get nervous. <laughs> That's why we do the shirt lifted thing is to help us get less nervous too. Yeah. yeah. Um, Thank you for the work that you've done. Um, this showed up, this showed up at a time in my life where I think it resonated differently and better than it would have if I'd heard it a year ago or two years ago. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for you guys taking the risk and putting the time out and, and Shalice for you, for you contributing the, the material and the perspective that is so different from mine that has become incredibly valuable for me in checking my own biases and my own preconceptions. Oh, so true. All right. Thanks everybody. That's awesome. You. Love you. <laughs> 
Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to Mormons on Mushrooms podcast. We have so much fun recording it. And if you love it, we would absolutely love it if you could leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It would really help our visibility so more people can listen to it and be enlightened and hear our crazy stories. So thanks again for tuning in. Thank you.